Amen, amen. You guys can grab a seat. And uh, can we can we just for a moment, um, this morning in our first service, we had three people baptized, four people in this service, and their testimonies have just really stirred my heart with great affection to the Lord. Can we just praise Him this morning and thank Him for that? Sometimes when we have baptisms, I just feel like I should come up and just go, amen, have a great day. It's, it's, it's amazing to see, and uh, you know, I love, I love when uh, God's people gather together, and there's something uh, a pretty, pretty awe-inspiring that happens in those moments, and not just in the midst of uh, what's happening in this room, in the, in the worship, and the preaching of God's Word, but also in our communities that's happening, and in our students' and our children's ministry. I'm just so, so thrilled by the fruit that's coming forth from there, and uh, I pray you continue to pray for those teams as they uh, serve our church, as we see not just not just um, older people, but younger people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and dedicating their um, life to him, and, and they're, they're proclaiming their faith in baptism, just an awesome picture. And uh, in this uh, series that we're in, Kingdom Culture, we're really trying to ask ourselves the question, do we understand what it means to really follow and chase after Jesus? Like, and and the, the pace of this uh, series has been refreshing because our world uh, tends to constantly rush at what I would say is a really unsustainable pace. And we've had the opportunity just to slow down and ask God to, uh, to that we want to hear from him. And we want, to, we want him to teach us and sort of empower us uh, by, by his truth and the power of his spirit. Amen? Like, that's what we want. And we want our culture to be transformed into a culture marked by God. Not by religion, not by the world, marked by God and what his word says. And so... To that end, with this passage in front of us that we have um, for us today, let me just pray for us. God, I'm asking this morning that you would um, sustain and that you would give um, your covering over this time, that you would um, communicate your word to these people, that you would bring it to bear on their hearts in exactly the way that you would want it. And I pray out of this, God, what would come forth is a a sense of just how awesome you are. God, a revelation that would deepen our appreciation for you and our thankfulness for you. And so we just ask that you would do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some of you have probably heard it said maybe in conversation with people um, when they're thinking about or commenting about the Bible or about the word of God and they'll say something to the effect of, the Bible is just full of a bunch of rules. Maybe you've heard that said or maybe you've even said that yourself. It's often um, stated almost with a sharp, even mocking tone. Just a bunch of rules. Or, or someone, will, or someone will, will quote an obscure Bible verse and they feel like, I gotcha. You know, it's like, and sometimes you don't know how to respond or maybe we're a little uncomfortable in that moment. Well, I hope that by the end of studying this passage, you'll have a response to that. A response that, highlights the beauty of the gospel and the majesty of what Christ has accomplished and continues to accomplish. A response that, that values the, the whole of Scripture. Because here's the reality, the Bible is full of lots of rules. In the law alone, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Jewish leaders over time have identified something around 613 commandments. 
248 positive and 365 negative. So we have a prohibition for every day of the year. You're like, great, this is so encouraging. And, and so, so into this sort of scene and scenario, Jesus comes on the scene and, and he was extremely critical of people who encouraged and promoted sort of this legalistic outward obedience to the law. And because of this, Jesus in his ministry and his life was often accused of not taking the law seriously to the point that these Jewish leaders were the ones that were instrumental in having him killed. And so into this confusion and misunderstanding, Jesus gives us some clarity that we need in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Read along with me. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, excuse me, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we understand this? Well, I want to walk us through this carefully, and this is a, a passage that's going to have a bit more teaching um, because there's some things that I want to make sure uh, we see clearly. But here's the big move. Let's start here. Deepen your awe of Christ by knowing that he fulfilled the law and prophets. He fulfills them. And it should deepen our awe of who God is. And there's three observations from this passage that's gonna help us get to that place of our awe being deepened, our worship being grown. Here's the first one. Discover how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. Discover how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. Look what he says in, in verse 17. He's like, he's correcting our thinking. And he says there, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of prophets. So you might, you could believe that. Um, and he's sharing that because some were thinking that. When Jesus says law or prophets, let's be clear here. He's talking about the whole of the Old Testament. The law was a reference to the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The reference to the prophets, uh, many have organized the rest of the Bible after Deuteronomy as sort of the former prophets, which includes the history and even some of the wisdom literature. And then later on, the later prophets are those, those, those books like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. They're referring to the Old Testament, and Jesus says here, I did not come to abolish the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. Verse 18 gives us the extent of his fulfillment. Look what it says. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That the truth of the revelation of the Old Testament will be accomplished every single piece of it. And, 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 and so there's going to be this time period until he comes and the new heavens and the new earth are instituted in Jesus' return. But until that point, like during that unknown amount of time, not a dot or iota will pass from the law. It's interesting, in some translations, it uses the word 
a jot or tittle. It's a reference in uh, the NIV, I think, if some of you have that translation. And uh, just look at this, um, check out this slide. I want you to understand what they're talking about here, what Jesus is referring to. When he's referring to jot, what he's referring to is a yod, that is the uh, smallest Hebrew letter. If you think by that, that Hebrew is confusing, you are right. Hebrew is insanely difficult to really understand deeply. And um, so, but he's saying there that that jot or yod is, is, is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the tittle or the um, iota is a reference to the smallest mark on a Hebrew letter. Notice how in the Beth letter and then Kaf, there's just that small little little piece that juts out. That's the reference here to tittle. It's the smallest little mark that would actually designate one letter from another letter. It's kind of like the difference in our, in our alphabet between the O and the Q. It's a small little mark, changes everything. And, and so what he's saying here is not a dot or a jot, an iota or a tittle will pass away until all of it is accomplished. And at that point, you've just got to step back and go, man, that gives tremendous authority to the Old Testament. Because all of Scripture we know is breathed out by God. It's without error and all of it has authority and everything in the Old Testament is, is looking forward to Christ and is fulfilled in Christ. At this point of, of Christ's ministry, when he's preaching this Sermon on the Mount, already parts of the Old Testament had been fulfilled through his life, through his birth. We love in, around Christmas to talk about these prophecies that that, that talk about the, the place and some of the occurrences around Christ's birth. They were already being fulfilled. And it will continue until all is accomplished. Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament in the Gospels, throughout his birth and his life and his ministry and then his death and his resurrection and then continuing into the early church and then all the way through church history up until right now is, is a part of this fulfillment of what Jesus promised, of what the Old Testament looked forward to. And honestly, when we consider this, it's, it's beautiful and it's powerful to consider. And it doesn't just give authority to the Old Testament, it gives authority to the whole of the Word of God. Like Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. I can preach a message about the impact of the cross before I even get to the New Testament. Because of the beauty of the way Isaiah was looking forward to what Christ would do on the cross. Fulfilled, though, in Christ's death. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Guys, we saw a fulfillment of that prophecy in the baptismal testimonies this morning because the fruit of and the work of salvation in people's lives is literally 
a continual fulfillment of what Ezekiel was looking forward to in Christ. It's amazing. And this prophecy of the future Holy Spirit that would be sent to indwell our hearts, and, and there's hundreds of more examples of this in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New it explains why, why Paul said in, in, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he said, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. When you see this authority that Christ brings and you start to see the way that Christ fulfills uh, so much of the Old Testament and is going to fulfill all of it, what it does is it adds a um, it adds a deep richness or flavor to the scriptures, doesn't it? When you catch glimpses of this, it it just adds this enjoyment of knowing God's word when you can see the rich, a depth of flavor, and richness. And you know, Thanksgiving's this week, and uh, get ready. This is a a mouth-watering illustration in anticipation of what's coming. Um, I love the richness of flavors at Thanksgiving. Anybody with me? Like, y'all looking forward to that? Some of you already preparing. You got the menu going. And um, in our house, um, not because of me, okay? Let's just be really clear on this. Um, uh, some people around me, they really love to raise their Thanksgiving game, right? Like, Let's see, let's see how we can let's see how we can kind of raise our game. And what we've learned over the last probably decade of, of Thanksgiving in my house is that there is a massive difference to the taste of turkey based on how you prepare it. Okay, like you can take turkey, you can just throw it in a pan, put it in that little bag, don't put any spices on it, you can just cook it in the oven. And and it'll come out and it'll 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 provide some protein and some sustenance for you. But It'll probably be a little bland. It's turkey, okay? Turkey needs some help. We all know that. And so what we found is, is that if you, if you find this little Cajun seasoning that comes in a syringe and you just start injecting that into the turkey, prepare the turkey a little ahead of time, and you put that turkey in like a fryer, that's a game changer. Like it changes the turkey, like suddenly there's like a richness and a flavor to it. And it's more enjoyable to eat, promise you. Basic knowledge about Jesus is awesome. You can get it into your soul, into your heart, and it'll provide all the basic fundamental realities that you need for salvation. And it will, come, it will satisfy you to some degree. But once you start to discover that Christ fulfilled all of these promises from the Old Testament. And you start to see the way that it all hangs together and you start to see the beauty and the unity of the uh, scriptures and it starts to inject this flavor into all of God's word. And you start to notice the, the, the depth and the breadth and the intricacy of how it all works together. You start to read things differently in the New Testament and in the Old. It starts to add flavor and a depth and a richness. We have to discover this. So just a really easy encouragement is as you're reading through scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, those footnotes that are in your Bible, you know that really tiny print that some of you need like, gotta, get, gotta find the right distance, right, to, to see it. Those footnotes oftentimes will refer to the Old Testament. Let me just encourage you to actually go there. 
And when you read the reference, and you're reading it from the New Testament into the Old, just think to yourself, Christ fulfilled that, or he's going to fulfill that. All of it will be accomplished. And there's a beauty and a depth right there for you. It's a picture of fulfillment in Christ. Like, if you want to see it even into a greater extent, just do it. Just do a slow reading through the through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will have way more footnotes than the rest of them. I promise you, because of the fact that it's hard to understand Hebrews without somewhat of a knowledge of the Old Testament. Because Hebrews is like, hey, 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 that 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 priest identity in the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ. That whole idea of rest in Eden, the very beginning of paradise, fulfilled in Christ. And again and again and again throughout Hebrews, you see this. And this discovery, it leads to worship. When someone adds richness and flavor to a meal, have you noticed it? Like you hear sounds of worship. It's what happens, right? Like when the food's cooked with, with excellence, when there's like a complexity and a depth to the taste, like it increases praise around the table. Some of you experience this on Thursday. There's people with all sorts of sounds, all sorts of affirmations and exclamations of satisfaction and cries of thanksgiving. And then afterwards, people like laying face down, like just affirming the goodness of the food or just snoozing because of the impact of it. Like you might even witness praise hands sometimes, like if, it's, if you're really raising your game. Like we get it when we eat stuff. There's like this natural praise that exudes. And when you inject the reality of Christ's fulfillment into your experience of consuming God's word, everything changes about the satisfaction. Discover how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. Like literally it will deepen your awe of Christ by knowing that he fulfilled the law and prophets. It's beautiful. Then second, this one, delight in the law of God. Delight in the law of God. So look again at verse 19. Jesus is like, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but um, I'm not signing up for least. Like I read this and I just go, I think sometimes scripture just plays the sort of our plain sense of, like I, I, don't, I don't know many people that wake up and like, I'm going for least today. I'm just going to go for least. No, if there's an opportunity for great when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, man, that's what I'm signing up for. And so here it says, whoever does them and teaches them, all of the commandments will be great in the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying here? What's he talking about? Well, in the messages that are coming following this week, Jesus starts to unpack what he means in a variety of teachings on a bunch of different subjects where he's like, you heard it said, but I say. And he's literally talking about the fulfillment of obedience. So that's coming. You have to come in the next few weeks as we talk and unpack that. But there's also, um, there's something bigger than that in play here. At first, what we want to do is not get into the specific commandments and how we're supposed to know them and do them, but let's just look at the law of God in total. 
this verse is calling us over all of the specifics to delight in the law of God. It's actually an affirmation that continues from what the Old Testament teaches. Like Psalm 1, if you remember in the Psalms, the very first uh, a place where we see these songs being recited, you hear, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In Psalm 119, you hear four different times in this beautiful proclamation of the goodness of the law of God. You hear him referring to delight, delight, delight in the law of God. Now in the New Testament, what, starts to, what you start to see is this, this, this uh, I've, Paul particularly is trying to give us an understanding of how the law and the gospel works together. And I'll admit, like, a bit sometimes confusing to understand, but beautiful when you see it. And so I'm going to give it a try. And so just turn to your neighbor and go, he's going to try. I'm going to try, okay? So give us a picture of this. So, so, so let's look first in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Paul's writing here and he says, For all who rely, rely on works of the law are under a curse. Okay, under a curse, not good. Can we all agree? Any place you see curse, curse, not good. I think we all got that part. I got that pretty easily. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So I'm like, shoot. Like that's a reference to Deuteronomy 27, 26, speaking of footnotes. And it leaves us going, well, like I can't obey all of the things of the law, so now I'm under a curse. And look how Paul continues. He's wrestling with it. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So I can't be right before God by my obedience to the law. Okay, let me think about that one. Look what it says. For the righteous shall live by faith. That's a reference to Habakkuk 2.4. This is the Old Testament looking forward to Christ's future fulfillment. The passage makes it clear. You cannot obey the law. You can't establish enough righteousness through your works to be approved by the law. You never can obey enough or consistently enough. Sorry. Here's the, here's the, here's the truth of the law of God. We are all left condemned by that law. It leaves all of us under the curse of the law. But there's hope because of what Paul alludes to. The righteous shall live by faith. And so if you know how Paul unpacks some of the teachings in other places, you know, and you can write this down and read through it later because I can't go fully into it in this message, but write down Romans chapter two and chapter three. What, what, what Paul unpacks there is he says, listen, God, God established this righteous rule and we can't go, well, God's just not gonna hold us to that righteous rule. Because God's God. If God established it, he's not going to be like, okay, well, I'll just, uh, that doesn't count anymore. And so here's the problem. The problem is that God's law establishes the evidence that no one is righteous. And some of you familiar with Romans 2 and 3 knows that it says there, no one is righteous, not even one. So at the foot, at, at the foot of the law, we all are equal. We're all condemned and under a curse. But the solution, the solution is that Christ has come and the righteousness of God is found through faith in Christ. In Christ. 
when your faith is in Christ, church, it's not just like I believe in something out there. It, there's a reality that what happens in faith is, is that I begin to identify my life with Christ. That's why in baptism we, we, we take someone and we drop them down under the water to say, my life now is signified with dying. I'm dying to self, but then being raised into Christ. And in that glorious relationship, I am covered by Christ's righteousness. So I have the righteousness of Christ through my identification with Christ through faith. And that's why in Romans 3.23, the summary statement of what Paul gives, look at it on the screen, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all together there. No one's, no one's more fallen short of the glory of God than someone else. All the same there. But then verse 24, so beautiful. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. <laughs> like, so, so why? Why can we delight in the law of God that condemns and puts us under a curse? Because it's the law that condemns and leaves you desperate for whom? Jesus. That's why we delight in the law of God, because it leaves us desperate for Christ. The law of God convicts us of our sin, showcases the deceitfulness of our own human hearts, and, and calls you to an obedience that you can't fulfill in your own power. To follow Jesus and to be found in him is both to find his righteousness over your life, but also the fulfillment of the law is through what he did, not through what you do or I do. Right now, in our, uh, the community groups in our church, we're walking through this sort of core curriculum for our church now and moving forward. This study titled Gospel-Centered Life, and in lesson four of this, there's a, 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 the lesson is titled Law and Gospel. Law and gospel. And there's this really helpful summary that I found that I hope will be an encouragement to you. Maybe help bring some clarity to this. Look what, look what, the, look what the person wrote. The, the author said, in a nutshell, here's how God designed it to work. The law drives us to the gospel and the gospel frees us to obey the law. Realizing all that God expects of us should drive us in despair to Christ. Realizing all that God expects of us should drive us in despair to Christ. That's why we delight in the law of God. See, I, I think sometimes in our world today, we, we have this constant aversion um, to pain. And the second we feel something that's hard, we're just like, I don't want nothing to do with that. I don't want to consider it. I don't want around it. If I could take ibuprofen and it'll help me, I'll take that. Anything else, if someone can help me, I just want to avoid the pain. And, and I got to be honest, the reality of what God is saying is that we delight in the law of God because it actually inflicts conviction on us that causes us to do this. I, I don't know what to do. I don't have an answer. And that pain literally, if rightly understood through the lens of the gospel, leads us, as it says here, 
drives us in despair to Christ. And I don't understand why we don't get this more because maybe in our individualistic culture where we just think like, I can manage myself. I don't need anyone. In that sort of arrogance of that individualism, we miss the fact that this is the beautiful picture of gospel-centered relationships all the time. Like, there's delight that comes in my life when I realize how insufficient I am in an area and then how someone that God has provided for me is completely sufficient. One of the great glories of my marriage is the beautiful revelation that my wife's strengths complement my insufficiencies and there are many, many. The, the beautiful joy of the body of Christ is in our staff, our elders, our, our, our people that are so dialed in and ready to go after building the kingdom of God in this church. Like There's so many of my insufficiencies and I'm just like, that person should be doing it, not me. They should be doing that role. They should be serving in that way. They should be encouraging that person in a a specific way or providing some service in ways that I can't. I'm so insufficient. And so the pain of insufficiency actually leads to delight in the unity that's found in the kingdom of God. It's the same thing in our relationship with God. It draws us together in Christ-centered unity. So, so, so start to understand that we delight in the law of God because it reveals your sin, your great need, and your despair apart from Christ. And don't try to, don't try to run from that fear. Don't try to run from that revelation. Church, that's, the, that's, actually, that's actually the revelation that will lead you to joy. The conviction, the despair, the pain, the neediness, the hunger, the desperation, that's what drives you to Christ. To what he's fulfilling and wanting to accomplish and, and, and literally, if I, could, if I could encourage you with anything, I would say this, that the intensity and the quality and the depth and the beauty and the power of your worship literally will grow in its capacity and its power in your life when you see your own failures and weaknesses and sins and through that see the sufficiency of Christ. And that conviction brings you back again to a a revelation of Christ and a passion and an urgency and a zeal for righteousness. Like, Literally, as I walk with Jesus, I feel like what he's doing is just making me more and more aware of how I fail in light of the law of God because he knows that I've been trained by the work of the Spirit of God that I know that leads me to delight in who Jesus is. Delight in the law of God. Deepen your awe of Christ by knowing he fulfilled the law and prophets. In this last observation, thirdly, dedicate your life to righteous living in Christ. Underline, circle that last part in Christ. Because verse 20, Jesus just kind of shocks his hearers. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. These guys were like the, these guys were the ones everyone looked up to when it came to righteousness, okay? Everybody looked up to them like, no, no, no. I'm glad they're the Pharisees and scribes, but I cannot attain to that. Plays out in the church sometimes today, unfortunately. But 
we, we position people as scribes or Pharisees, like, oh man, they're so much more spiritually maturing because they just know the Bible better. And uh, that's, not, that's not the reality we want to live in. So he says that if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, just check in your Bible, make sure it's the same as mine, because it says there, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. At that point, there's got to be a little urgency, a little bit of a crisis in what's being communicated here by Jesus. We're supposed to exceed their righteousness? The ones who were sort of parading themselves around and were esteeming the community as being the righteous of the righteous? We're supposed to exceed that. Well, we got to understand what Christ is saying here, because otherwise this is a really discouraging verse. To understand first, you have to have Christ, you have to have an understanding of Pharisees and scribes. Now, Pharisees were this group of uh, Jewish leaders, and they had a power and influence in the Jewish community. They emphasized the keeping of the law to every detail, just like Jesus shared earlier. But the Pharisees actually went one step further. They were like, you know what, there's places where we think the law isn't clear. So you know what, we're going to make more laws upon the already many laws Pharisees love to come up with laws for everything and to then showcase how faithful they were to those laws. Now, scribes, what they were is scribes were experts of the law. Why? Well, because the printing press didn't exist. And so scribes were the ones that literally were making copies of the scriptures. And let's be honest, when you're making a copy of something like the scriptures, if you were to copy down the word of God and feel like, I've got to make sure every single letter is perfect and meticulous detail. Guess what? At the end of one copy, you're going to know God's word better. I promise you. You're going to copy that thing down. And so the scribes had this extensive knowledge. And the scribes and Pharisees were highly regarded in the religious community. But they were not highly regarded by Jesus. Jesus opposed them. He spoke against them because he knew their obedience was only outward. They loved to showcase their like outward righteousness, but inwardly they were as sinful and fallen and condemned because they could not, not anyone has ever, apart from one person, been able to be perfect in light of the law of God. And they remained under the curse of the law because they could never be perfectly faithful to the law. There's no way to live perfectly Perfectly righteous, relying on your works alone. You need someone else to fulfill the righteousness and then literally grant you or impute to you or give to you the righteousness. And that person is Jesus Christ. They needed Christ, but the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who rejected him and eventually had him killed. And Jesus calls you to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because he knows that it can only happen when you are united with Christ. So let's look again at this gospel-centered life quote that I quoted earlier. In a nutshell, here's how, the God, here's how God designed it to work. The law drives us to the gospel and the gospel frees us to obey the law. Realizing all that God expects of us should drive us in despair to Christ. And in this next section, so critical and important. And once we are united with Christ by faith, the indwelling Holy Spirit causes us to delight in God's law and gives us the power to obey it. See, what the gospel does is, the gospel 
it communicates in, in light of this idea of, of okay, now, now as a follower of Christ, I want to live rightly. That, that's a right a desire that I believe is born from the Holy Spirit and the call of God on your life. And, but what, what you learn in Christ is that you, you learn that you obey out of love, not to earn love. Right there is a turning point. I've seen people's, literally, the, as Paul says, the scales fall off of people's eyes and they realize that their whole entire life, decade after decade after decade, has been lived nothing but religious Christianity. When they recognize that you learn to obey out of love, not to earn love. So many churches and parents and, 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 and leaders have, have got this so confused and have just created a pharisaical version of of, of, of what was the Jewish law and they've just kind of painted sort of Christian colors over it, but underneath it, it's not any different. It's now just a Christian law. But no, you learn to obey out of love, not to earn love. You obey out of worship, not so that you can then be invited to worship. We're forgiven by his grace and we're empowered to obey by his grace. It's the only reason why and the only way you can understand 1 John 5, 3, for it says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome because my obedience comes out of a love for Christ, out of relationship. There's a beauty in this that you see in parents and young children when they want to do something and a parent knows that they can't but they walk right alongside them, helping them do it. They don't, they don't feel like they've got to do that thing to earn your love. Your love is the thing that walks them through it. Every Tuesday afternoon, as many of you know, I, I walk into one of my favorite meetings of the week. It's called Sermon Brainstorm, where I bring whatever clunky idea for a message I have into a room with a bunch of our staff and, um, and they just sort of look at me and go, yeah, we're going to need to help you out with this. And uh, we talk and process through the message. And um, I, I wish some weeks that you could hear the, um, the passion of the discussion in that meeting and the heart and the love that, um, that those leaders um, around me have for you. We, we just want and long and desire that you would know God's word rightly and live righteously in Christ, in Christ. We, we don't want you to try to live the Christian life in your own power or, or to live it out of religious tradition like the Pharisees and scribes. That is an, that is an unbelievably, a lifeless, artificial, religious existence where where you're you're close enough to the gospel to know the condemnation and the curse of the law but not close enough to abiding in Christ where you're found in his love and empowered by his grace to be faithful and and honestly in so much of what we do in and around the ministry in our church is to lead us into that because our mission if you've noticed on the, a wall out in the hallway is not to make scribes or Pharisees, it's to make disciples. We want you more than anything to embrace Christ 
as your own. To, to rest in his love for you, to invite him into every part of your life, to allow through the yielding of our hearts and faith to let the spirit of God come in and through the work of the word of God, just literally let the word just undo your life. Change the way you think, the way you feel, uh, the, your purpose, all of it. And to learn to live righteously as an act of worship, empowered by the Holy Spirit and dependent on it. So start by submitting your heart to Christ, not to the church, not to religious tradition, but to Jesus. And then, guess what will happen? When your heart is yielded to Jesus, your identity is in him. The old is gone, the new is come. My life is of no consideration. The, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And when I live by faith in the Son of God, guess what happens through Christ because of his imputed righteousness, his covering over my life, my righteousness now exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's, it's just amazing how this happens because, because my righteousness is Christ's righteousness. And he has proven himself already in what he's accomplished, that he's the perfect, holy son of God. And yeah, we still wrestle with, with the law of God and the law of sin, and that's a reality Paul talks about in Romans 7 and Romans 8. And, uh, but, but, but the Spirit draws us, and, and, and our heart and our desire day by day is to live by faith and, and to live in that Spirit and to have our minds on the things of the Spirit and faithfully obey God's law, empowered by the Spirit. So let me just encourage you, if you're like, man, where do I start? I want to faithfully, in Christ, be obedient to the law of God. Be reminded of what Jesus highlighted, the two greatest commandments in Matthew 22. When asked, teacher, which is the great, great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Even then he starts by saying, find it in a loving re relationship with God. This is the great and first commandment, and second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Discover how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. Delight in the law of God. Dedicate your life to righteous living in Christ, and that will deepen your awe of Christ by knowing that he fulfilled the law and the prophets. So is the Bible a bunch of rules? Uh, yeah, in some ways, there's a lot of rules in the Bible and, and they were all important to God for a variety of reasons, some for a period of time, some beyond that. They're essential to establish righteousness before God. And I stand condemned by my unrighteousness because I cannot fully and continually obey the law. But my despair because of that leads me to Christ. And through Christ and his love, I am marked by his righteousness. And the Spirit's power leads me to obey. Deepen your awe of Christ by knowing that he fulfilled the law and the prophets. Let's stand to worship Christ for his work. And just stand now and, and I'm just going to pray over us. And, and, and God's just going to prepare us to sing this song to him which is a right offering and a right response to the beauty of what Christ has accomplished. Let's pray together. God, right now I'm asking that you would just lead us in this um, offering to you that um, I believe, God, that you're present even in this room right now wanting to meet with us and, and wanting to 
just reveal yourself to us. Thank you, God, for giving us access to the Father. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, continuing to mediate for your followers and for sending your Holy Spirit to empower us. Let us not just consider these things. Let us be in awe of these things. Let it stir up a depth to our worship and a richness to our walk with you. That we consider the beauty and intricacy of who you are and what you fulfilled, tying all of the scriptures together. God, I pray that this would fall on our hearts and it would literally deepen our awe. And there would be a sweetness and a joy that would come from this as we praise you for all that you are to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.